Thank you very much. It's great uh, to be with you today. And we're starting this new series in Luke's Gospel, focusing on the events in the last week of Jesus' life. And if you've ever read one of the accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, all the way through, um, you'll know that the, the writers don't waste words. You can read one of them in about an hour and a half. It doesn't take long to read it all the way through. But about a third of their accounts focus on the last few days of Jesus' life. It's that important. And it's relevant not just for one week of our year, but for every day of our lives. And the passage we're looking at today, uh, Jesus is approaching the city of Jerusalem where in just a few days he will uh, be arrested, he'll be tried, and he will um, be executed. So that's where we're going to pick up the story as he approaches Jerusalem. So this is in Luke 19 um, from verse 28. So after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I want to talk to you today about how to let go of control and take hold of freedom. We tend to think that, that greater control in our lives will lead to more freedom. I don't know about you, but I, I tend to think that I know what's best to happen. Like, I've worked it out. These are the things that should happen. That's the best way it should go. And if only I had complete control, then I could make those things happen, and I'd be much happier. So we think we know the things we need, the, the things, the achievements, the experiences, the relationships, which will give us a measure of success, significance, security, satisfaction. And if we're in control of our lives, we can order our lives towards those things. You know, we can decide the course of our lives, the trajectory of our careers, the nature of our relationships, and try and ensure our life plays out according to our preferences. And it's great in three, but there's only two uh, problems with that approach. The first is that sometimes even when we have all the control we could want, and we even get those things, they don't satisfy us in the way we had hoped. Sometimes an abundance of choice doesn't lead to increased freedom. But also, sometimes our attempts to be in control are frustrated. Life happens. I was thinking about that this week. I've got um, three little girls. Um, one is six, one is almost three, and one is one year old. Just the experience of having three little girls has reminded me how little control I actually have in my life. But as you will know, today is uh, Mother's Day, and if you didn't know that, it's not too late. You've still got time um, to save that relationship. And um, uh, I, I, was, I was kind of speaking to my girls, and I was kind of getting together. I wanted their input on things, and I wanted them to... Um, 
to, to choose their kind of, you know, to be involved in the process at least of choosing a present for um, their mum. So I got them together, all three of them, and I said, girls, we're going to go to the shops on Saturday and we're going to get a present for Mother's Day for mummy. Okay, so is there anything you're thinking that you think it might be good to get? And they kind of, you know, thought about it for a little while. And then um, Bex, who's almost three, kind of looked at me and she said, some horses? I mean, I was thinking more flowers, like a gift. And I said, horses. He said, horses. And, um, and I suddenly thought, well, I'm not really sure what to do here. You know, I mean, because I know that um, although it's a really lovely idea, really, really, you know, it's the thought that counts, um, I might not have got the best reaction if I kind of arrived this morning bringing two horses. We don't really roll that way. Um, we don't really have the space for those things. Um, it's not really sustainable for us. Um, and so, so sometimes we can feel like we don't really have control. But also... Perhaps even when we're older, we don't, things just happen. Life happens. We can be going along quite merrily. And then things happen which reveal to us quite clearly how much of an illusion our sense of control can be. So people we care about get sick. Our career, in which we place so much hope, hits obstacles. And it doesn't seem to be working out the way we had planned. A relationship in which we're placed, all our hope falls apart. People who we greatly admired let us down. And it can just show us that actually we don't have the control we thought we had. Life happens. It gets in the way. So how can we know a sense of freedom that satisfies? Is there a way in which we can kind of let go of control for the promise of freedom? And this passage speaks to exactly that issue. And it's both deeply challenging and hugely encouraging. So the first thing it shows us is how to let go of control. So, so much in our culture kids us into thinking we're in control. You decide, you choose. Life is about your preferences, your choice. And it's attractive because if we're honest, the world can seem a pretty chaotic place. You know, the times we just feel like, wow, if I can just have control over this area, if I can just have control over me, if I can just have control over my flat, my room, over my little desk space in my open plan office, at least this is an environment over which I have a measure of control. And it's interesting because in this passage, the people of Jerusalem had experienced a significant loss of control. They were occupied by the Roman Empire. They were subject to the rule of Pilate. And there was a temptation for them to cling tightly to the areas of the city, like the temple, where they still had a measure of control. But their hope was that one day, one day, the Messiah would come, the King would come, who would throw off the occupiers, restore power to God's people, and give them the control they needed to find freedom. And when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he does so in a particular way to send a really clear message that he was the anticipated, the prophesied king they'd been waiting for. In Zechariah 9, it's prophesied, Behold Jerusalem, your king comes to you, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus gets hold of a donkey, and he rides in. And as he does so, his followers are kind of praising and worshipping using words from Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And as they're doing so, they're kind of expressing their hopes for what he's going to bring to them. Because in the line just before, it says, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. 
how often we long for security and success. And they, they just hope that he'll give them what they long for. The chance of seeing things turn out the way we hoped and planned. And they've seen what he can do. They've, you know, the waves and the wind obey him. They've seen that. They've seen the power to raise the sick, to heal the sick and raise the dead. And they're kind of thinking, this is it. This is the moment. The Romans are going to be gone. We can take back control. All our desires will be fulfilled. But the thing is, Jesus will often fulfill your greatest desires, but not in the way you had anticipated. Jesus knows what he has to do. He knows what he's come to do. He knows what has to happen because he is the king. And it turns out that the disciples' expectations are going to be disappointed before they can be surpassed. I experienced this. I was, um, when I was working as a barrister, I loved my job. I worked as a, a criminal defense barrister defending people. Um, over the years, I probably defended hundreds, maybe a thousand people um, accused of crimes. Great to see so many of you here today. And, um, the, um, but I loved my job, and it was going really well. And there was one particular year where I had the year all planned out. And I had this big case that had come up, and I was going to earn lots of money. It was going to be a really exciting case. It was going to last about six months. And then the week before it was due to start, it all stopped. And the case just went. And I still remember being in the office and getting this news and being in a state of complete shock and disorientation. Like, this isn't how I thought it would go. And kind of feeling the sense of real disappointment. And like, like how has this happened? And I, I, I was so confused, I, I, I wanted to take a while before I get home to kind of process it. So I got on the bus, and the bus kind of chugged, chugged all the way around central London. I was on it for about an hour and a half, just thinking, what has happened? And I was kind of talking to God and just saying, you know, God, I thought we were in this together. Um, I thought you'd made this case happen. I thought you thought it was good news too. I'd asked you for it. You gave it to me. Now it's disappeared. Uh, did I not pray right? Did I not pray loud enough? How has this happened? And I managed to fill in some of the space, but it basically meant there was like a six-week gap um, where I didn't have too much to do. I thought I was going to be doing really exciting stuff. I was basically kicking my heels. And because of that, my church asked if anyone could go and help with taking a whole group, like 50-plus young people from the streets of Tower Hamlets in East London to this Christian festival in Somerset. And I thought, well, I'll go along. I've got nothing better to do. So I went along, and it turned out I was the cook. <laughs> so if you ever tried to cook for 50 people... Like in a campsite, it's really hard. It's basically a full-time job. Like I spent all my days with this, like, this massive cauldron of rice, just like stirring it, like you know, trying to stop it sticking. That was all I did. So what has my life become? This is not how I planned this year to go. I was supposed to be in the courtroom earning money, not in a field stirring rice. So disappointed. And then at one point in the um, week, I was... I thought, I just need to get away from that stove just for a few minutes. So I was kind of walking around. And I came across uh, a talk that was being given in, just in a, you know, a, a random place. And I thought, well, I'll just listen to this. And it was about thinking about whether you might be called into leading a church to, to be a vicar. And I thought, oh, you know, no harm in that. Um, so I started listening, and, I, and it was really encouraging, actually, because they read out the job description of what it means to be a vicar, and I just felt this deep sense of peace and contentment, because I thought, there's no way on earth I will ever be able to do that, so I'm completely safe. And, um, and I was just about to leave, and then they read out the next line, which is, 
you cannot do this in your own strength, but only by the grace of God. And I was like, oh no, I'm stuck. And that actually was the moment for me when I realized that God was calling me into something new, into something different. Now, I didn't want to be there. I hadn't planned to be there. But that was exactly where God needed me to be, to hear exactly what he needed to say to me. It's interesting, sometimes we have plans based on our preferences, but God wants to see out his purposes in our lives. Sometimes the only way God can show us he's in control is to push us into situations where we feel out of control, where we can't control them. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, it's going to look quite different to what his followers expect. It's not about some kind of military force or political might. Jesus knows the rest of Psalm 118, which they're singing out. And that says, yes, there's a hope the king is going to come, but it also says the stone the builders reject will become the cornerstone. Jesus knew as he approached the city that he would be rejected and executed before he would be resurrected and exalted. You see, he knew that other ways that people had in mind, their plans weren't going to cut it. Why? Not because he just wanted to meet their expectations, but because he was going to surpass them. Jesus didn't just come to destroy God's enemies, but to turn his enemies into friends. He didn't just come to free people from the political regime, but from prisons of their own making. He didn't just come to save us from those who oppose us, but to save us from ourselves. He came to establish his kingdom, not through might, but through mercy. He's not just a king. He's the king, the promised king, the prophesied king the king of all. He hasn't just come to save one city, one people. At one time, he's come to save all people, every tribe and tongue and nation for all time. He's not just a king. He's not just a king. He's the king. And it's funny because the religious leaders, whose only job actually was to look for the coming of the king, to welcome him and announce him, to declare that he's arrived, they completely miss it because it doesn't look like what they expect. It doesn't look like how they would have planned it if they had complete control. The Messiah is right there. Jesus is right there. They could have reached out and touched him, but they miss it. They're even upset. They say to him, tell your followers to be quiet. And Jesus says, look, if they don't cry out and praise me, the stones will. Why? Because the king who made the earth has come to the earth. And creation responds to him. Even stones, the most lifeless, dense thing, will cry out. If you don't worship, it doesn't mean he's not going to be worshipped. Why? Because he's the king. And when you glimpse that, when you see that, that he's not just a king, but the king, that he's got no rival and no equal, you realize you don't have to fear losing control because he's in charge. You don't have to fear missing out because he is Lord. You don't have to fear bad news because he is powerful to turn even things which are intended for harm to good. You know, he's a king whose own death didn't frustrate his purposes. His own death didn't lead to his kingdom's end, but to his actual enthronement. You don't have to fear losing control when you see that he's the king. 
But then also this passage tells us how we might take hold of freedom. Because it's one thing to glimpse Jesus as the king, but it's quite another thing to see him as my king. My king. And that's one of the key transitions in life, actually. To go from, well, I kind of admire Jesus over there. Hypothetically, I can see he's a really great guy. Might even be the king. To say, he's going to be my king. And actually, the idea of uh, having a king might sound a bit old school to you. You might feel like, "Mm, thanks, but no thanks. Particularly if you're American or French. Um, You might think we're kind of done with that. We've put that to bed. And even if you're quite fond of the... the, um, the, the royal family, the monarchy in our country, you might be thinking you're, you're glad that we don't have absolute monarchy, our, 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 rule, our king and queen that have an absolute um, power. Although if you're listening, Your Majesty, just want you to know I've always been a huge fan. Um, <laughs> but actually, over the last 200 years, you know, the number of kings and queens has dramatically reduced in our world. You know, only 26 sovereign royal families at the moment, maybe only about 10 of them have any kind of overall power. But what I find interesting is while our kings and queens have reduced dramatically, there's still something in our hearts that longs for, looks for, a strong ruler, a leader, a hero, someone to admire because of their power, their wealth, or their fame. We still search for kings and queens. And I was thinking about this on Tuesday because I was spending some time with uh, the Duchess of Cambridge and the Duchess of Cornwall, you know, as you do. And um, when I say I was with them, I mean, we were on the same street. And um, when I say some time, actually, they just kind of drove past me quite quickly in their car. But I gave them a little, maybe I should have bowed, I don't know. But, um, but I was thinking about this because I saw them, you know, just a fleeting glimpse as they drove past very quickly with their police escorts. And I thought, oh... I've seen royalty. I've seen royalty today. You know, I felt the kind of significance of their status rub off of me a little bit. But why is that? What's going on? It seems there's something in the human psyche that wants to place trust in something that is greater, someone that is greater. So people are captivated by political leaders, you know, by singers, by celebrities, people we can admire, follow, place our trust in, in the hope that some of their fame, their wealth, or their power might rub off on us and give us some kind of security, some kind of significance, some kind of satisfaction. But at the same time, if we're honest, we worry about the idea of kings and queens because we know that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. We know how easily it can be abused because of people's mixed motives, and so we're wary. We kind of long for, but we're wary of kings and queens. What I find fascinating about this passage is Jesus makes his claim to be king and is unmistakable. You know, he enters Jerusalem. His disciples are saying he is the king. Followers are declaring him. He organizes this procession into the city as a king. He's not half-hearted about it. There's no false humility here. It's not like the Oscars, you know, where they read out the nominees. You have the kind of split screen. You can see all their faces. And then they read out the winner and they're kind of like, me? 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 Oh, surely there's a mistake. How could it be me? Oh, I'm so shocked. I'm so, you're thinking it's one in six chance. You know, they're so shocked. You know, how could it possibly be me? They kind of walk up to the stage going, oh, how has this ever happened? They get to the microphone. I'm completely blown away. I never anticipated this. And then they pull out their like, lengthy, prepared <laughs> speech. And you're like... There's none of that going on here. 
There's no doubt in Jesus' mind. He's the king. He doesn't tell his disciples to stop saying it. He's entirely secure in his identity. He knows who he is and what he's called to do. So it's not real humility to deny your true identity. In fact, the more aware you are of your true identity, the more able you are to show real humility. Jesus makes this bold statement, entering Jerusalem as the king, and yet he's content to do it on a donkey. There's a real difference between timidity and humility. True humility is bold. It comes from a place of absolute, complete security. Humility isn't saying you're bad at things you're good at. It's complete confidence in who you really are. And sometimes people are tempted to make these great displays of wealth, of power, of status, of achievement. Not because they're sure of who they are, but because they're unsure of it. It's our insecurity which drives us to pride. And Jesus is absolutely confident in his identity. He knows he's the king, the much-loved son of God. And that means he can be completely humble. He can sit on a donkey and come in as king because he's a captivating, different kind of king. It's interesting because someone who had power and authority without humility or gentleness would be wary of following that person. Not sure if we really want to do that. Can we trust them? But someone who had humility and gentleness without any kind of power or authority, you're kind of like, not sure if I really want to follow that. Like, what's the point? But Jesus has complete power and authority, and yet he has such a humility and gentleness. He's the gentle king. It makes me think of my friend Wesley. Um, the school I went to was quite a rough school, and uh, lots of schools rank themselves on the basis of academic achievement or um, uh, sporting achievement. We just ranked ourselves on the basis of um, who could beat up who. And uh, so there was like quite a clear hierarchy in our school. There were all the kind of dangerous people at the top and then people like me at the bottom. Um, but the reason I was able to survive for five years there just was that um, uh, one of my good friends, Wesley, was right at the top, like the very top. And he, um, he was huge. Like he was like a giant. He was like six foot nine. He was built. He was stacked. He was massive. Um, he was quick. He could run the 100 meters in under 11 seconds when he was 14 years old. And he looked like he was jogging. Um, when we played rugby, you just kind of gave him the ball and he just ran. And everyone just kind of bounced off him. It was amazing. Um, and actually, he was so powerful. So powerful. But the really interesting thing about Wesley was he wasn't interested in violence at all. I mean, he could have beaten up the entire school on his own. He just wasn't interested. Do you know what he really loved to do? He really loved to draw, and particularly he really loved to draw cartoons. He was just like, like a gentle giant. He was just so gentle. It was amazing being his friend, because if you were kind of with him, no one touched you. I mean, no, no one wanted to run that risk, but you also could completely trust him because he was such a gentle guy. And it's really interesting because... Jesus is not just secure in his identity as king. He's also completely trustworthy in his character. It's one thing to admire Jesus from afar. It's another to trust him with your life. Your king comes to you humble, gentle. And if that's true, it means you can trust him. You see, real freedom isn't a matter of having complete control over your life, but total trust in your king. You know, that the one you follow is good, he wants your best. 
And sometimes our fear is if we, if we kind of really open up, if we really bow the knee to Jesus, he might want us to change a few things in our lives, shift a few things around, challenge us in a few areas, ask us to do something we don't really want to do. Sometimes it's like we open the door to Jesus and we say, come in. And then we say, what, stay on the mat, please, just don't come too far in. Maybe in the hallway, like in a nice contained safe space, but we don't want him wandering around the whole house. He might see something he doesn't like or you know, move some things around. You know, we like it contained. Come this far, but no further. Sometimes we, it's almost like we want to have Jesus as a consultant, not as a king. Like, I'm happy for you to be involved in this part of my life but on my terms. Happy to hear what you have to say, and then I'll make my own mind up about what I want to do. You, know, you can sometimes be really in control of your life, and things can be going really well, and the question is the same. Are you prepared to welcome him as king? But Jesus isn't just offering good advice. He comes to lead us to our best lives. Actually, everything we set our hearts on other than him, everything, you know, a ruler, a leader, a career, an ambition, will ultimately ask you to lay down your life for it. It will cost you everything. Every king ultimately asks their subjects to lay down their lives for the king's kingdom. And Jesus is the only king who laid down his life to bring you into his kingdom. He knew when he walked, when he went into Jerusalem, hearing shouts of praise, that within a few days, he would be hearing shouts of crucify him. He knew as he was carried in by that donkey that in a few days, he would walk out carrying his own cross. He knew the cost and he did it for you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he wanted to win you. Because you are his glory, his joy, the joy that was set before him. That's why he came. And when you see that, when you believe that, when you feel that, you can trust him and you can follow him without fear. Because you know he has your best interest at heart. You can even obey him, full of confidence. I find it fascinating that they go to the people who have the donkey this donkey, it says in the passage, which has never been ridden before. And the owner's like, why are you taking the donkey? And they say, the Lord has need of it. And that's enough. That's the authority. That's the authority that people respond to. I wonder if that's a significant word for you today. The Lord has need of it. Maybe that's something in your life which you've been holding back, resisting him in. Maybe that's true for you. I wonder if it's ever crossed your mind that the Lord might have need of you, that he might be whispering you, calling to you, saying, come, there's some stuff I want us to do together. Come and get involved. It's fascinating, this donkey has never been ridden before. And I don't know about you, if you've ever ridden a horse that's never been ridden before, or a donkey that's never been ridden before, doesn't tend to go well. You know, animals instinctively distrust humans because they're smart. Jesus gets on this donkey, which has never been ridden before, and calmly, confidently, it walks through a crowd of people cheering. Why? 
because Jesus is holding the reins. The one who made it is leading it. Don't you want to be led by the one who made you? There's no better place, no freer place, no more joyful place than being led by Jesus. To be honest, you'll never be truly free unless you're prepared to bow the knee, to bow the knee to Jesus. Why? Because he has a purpose for your life. He wants joy in your life. He has a purpose for your family, your friends, your workplace, this city. And he's asking you today, I have need of you. I have need of this. Will you respond? Will you welcome him not just as a king, but the king? Will you welcome him not just as the king, but as my king? Lord, would you come and be king in my heart, king in my life? Would you lead me? I want to be led by you because I know you are good. I know your love endures forever. And I know that because you are completely powerful and utterly gentle, I can trust you with the entirety of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen.